Well, thank you so much for that beautiful music and the warm welcome. Pastor Brad, really appreciate that. Also, thanks to Pastor Brian for inviting us here. And special thanks to the Watkins that have allowed us to stay at their house. And we're having a great stay. It's a beautiful place. First time I've been to Boise. Now, if you saw this collar and you thought maybe you're in the wrong church, or maybe you thought, I'm coming from the wrong church, uh, we wear these at the, in the Church of Central Africa Presbyterian in Malawi. The pastors do at the, in the Church of Central Africa Presbyterian. And did you know that there are more than uh, 2 million communicant members in the Church of Central Africa Presbyterian in the Komisina in the small country of Malawi? There are more Presbyterians in Malawi in this, than there are in the entire United States, all Presbyterian denominations. In fact, there are five or six times as many Presbyterians in the central region of Malawi than there is in the entire Presbyterian Church in America. And what we found over 12 years of teaching in Malawi at the African Bible College, and I've had the privilege of teaching over 600 students, 600 graduates, and many of them are leaders in various aspects of society as well as several are pastors, is that um, the vast majority of teaching and preaching that happens in the African churches is done by untrained laypersons. So how can we empower those untrained laypersons that are doing the vast majority of teaching and preaching? And what we've come to is we can teach a a kingdom, a Christ-centered kingdom biblical theology through the stories of the Bible. Now, in Africa, uh, Africans tend to be oral learners. They learn their identity, their history, their values through stories. But what we've done in the Western church or tended to do is to take the biblical story and strip the gospel from that story and then reduce it down to a track. And when we slap it on an oral culture, the people remain defined by their cultural stories. So if Africans are going to be defined by the gospel, then the gospel will have to be restored to its biblical story. And we can do this by teaching a Christ-centered kingdom biblical theology through the stories of the Bible itself. And we can do this in the local church in a way that at no additional charge to those who are actually doing the teaching and preaching, and we can do it in a way that they can not only learn, but that they can reproduce themselves. So in order to do this, God has called us, or at least play our part in that, to plant a church using our biblically accurate, orally reproducible set of stories. We're going to plant this church, God willing, in the Cape Town area to black African students coming to the University of Stellenbosch, and hopefully the church will be taken over by one of my uh, graduates from African Bible College who will be an intern there, and then we'll move back up into Malawi where we will move to the a pavilion conference center where we'll be able to teach and preach biblical theology through stories from the conference center and out in the local church. So that's our vision for ministry. That's what we've been talking about for the last couple of days. But uh, I'm going to get to the scripture. Don't worry. We're going we're to get to the scripture. Revelation 12, if you want to get ahead of me. But I want to start by telling you a story. <laughs> and uh, I was at the airport in Denver and there was an African man at the counter helping me with my, uh, my baggage and getting a boarding pass. And so I said, where are you from? And he said, you need to guess. And I said, well, let me hear your accent. And so I really did guess, but I said, Kenya. And he said, nobody ever guesses that. So 
I'm going to give you your luggage for free. <laughs> and I was very grateful, but uh, because he was African, I said, you know, uh, I'd like to tell you a story. Can I tell you a story? And he said, sure. And I said, you know, everything that was written in the Law of Moses and in the Prophets and the Psalms had to be fulfilled about Jesus, that the Christ would have to suffer and then rise from the dead. And then repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached in all nations, starting in Jerusalem. And then after Jesus had suffered, he showed himself to be alive with many convincing proofs to his disciples over a 40-day period and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion while they were eating, he said to his disciples, he commanded them, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of my father, because John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will empower you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Because all power and authority in heaven and on earth had been given to Jesus, and therefore they were to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And before Jesus ascended into heaven, he lifted his hands to bless his disciples, and as he was blessing them, he was taken up and hidden from their sight behind a cloud, and they stood staring into the sky, and two men in white appeared and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here staring into the sky? This same Jesus who you saw taken into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And I told my friend that story because that's the gospel. I wanted him to hear the gospel in a way that he could hear it and remember it. You see, Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Messiah of Israel, has ascended to the right hand as the ascended Lord of all the earth. And that's our gospel. That's our gospel. We didn't see Jesus bodily raised from the dead. We didn't see him ascend into heaven. And we live on the other side of Pentecost. But this is our gospel. The resurrected Messiah of Israel has ascended as the King and the Lord of all the earth. And this is the good news of the gospel. God has found in Jesus Christ a righteous King to rule his world. And the ascension of Jesus is a critical turning point in that biblical story. And that takes us to our passage, because in our passage it talks about the woman who gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So look at me with me in Revelation chapter 12. It's in your bulletin, but I'll be reading from the NIV, and that's just the version that I've always used, so... Starting in verse 1, Revelation chapter 12. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars from the sky and flung them to the earth, and the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth that she might devour, that he might devour her child the moment that it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. 
And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. And he's filled with fury, because he knows his time is short. We'll end the reading there, and let's pray. Father, we do come to you in the name above every name, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that even now, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we may know you better. And we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us even now, and fill us with your Spirit. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what a great story. (laughs) Yet, tragically, we often miss that great story because we often neglect the book of Revelation. We find strange images in the book of Revelation and we think, oh, uh, it's a kind of a jigsaw puzzle. that you've got to take all the various pieces and put them in just the right order so that you can understand all the, all the various end-time events. Uh, but the book of Revelation is not a jigsaw puzzle. You know, I bought a puzzle for my daughter. She's five years old. I wanted to teach her the story of David and Goliath, and I neglected to see that it was a thousand-piece puzzle. <laughs> so she took that puzzle... And she put it on a shelf, never to be used again. (laughs) Well, sometimes we leave the book of Revelation because we find these strange images in the book of Revelation. We don't know what to do with them. So we leave it to the so-called prophecy experts whose interpretations are even more bizarre than the images themselves. But the book of Revelation is a genre of literature called apocalyptic literature that was well known in the first century. And a when, you, when it comes to apocalyptic literature, literalism, unless absurd, is a nice, uh, let's say, uh, is a good rule when it comes to historical narrative, but when it comes to apocalyptic literature, symbolism is the rule, and literalism is the exception. The book of Revelation, the apocalypsis, is the unveiling or the revealing of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation pulls back the curtain on the unseen spiritual world around us or on the physical uh, world around us that we might see the unseen spiritual world around us. And it gives us a vision of the present reign of the Lord Jesus Christ behind the scenes of history. And John can say in Revelation 1.5, he describes Jesus, even in the first century, as the ruler of the kings of the earth. And I love this chapter, Revelation 12. I think it's one of the great chapters in the whole Bible, because it's not a puzzle. It's a picture book. And in my house, with a 9, 7, and 5-year-old, we love picture books. Because it tells a graphic story with vi- vivid images, right? Chapter 12 paints a picture of the complete biblical drama and the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God in, in, is the turning point in that story. A truly righteous man has been snatched up to God. 
and has been enthroned as the king of all the earth. This chapter tells the biblical story using vivid images. It's like the Lord of the Rings. It's like the best of Marvel comics. It's like the Jesus Storybook Bible, all wed together in one awesome, concise chapter. So let's think about the story. Think about the characters in the story, okay? The dragon. Who is the dragon? He sweeps a third of the stars, and he's the accuser of the brethren. He's hurled down. The dragon, verses 9. He's the devil or Satan, all right? That one's not hard. How about the male child? The woman gives birth to a male child. He's snatched up to God and to his throne. And now has come the kingdom and the authority of his Christ. The male child is, is Jesus. Well, what about the woman? This is a little tougher. Who gave birth to, to Jesus? Well, Mary gave birth to Jesus. Is it Mary? Well, if you know the imagery, the, the um, woman clothed with the sun and she's got the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars. That's coming from Genesis chapter 37. And that's from Joseph's dream. At least it has an allusion to Joseph's dream. When Joseph's brothers were all bowed to him. So is it, so is it Israel or is it the Old Testament people? Uh, well, you know, do we call the people of Messiah the people who have rejected Messiah? Well, you know, and then it goes on to talk about the rest of the woman's offspring. So, you know, is it the church? So, you know, which is it? All of the above. I'm going with that. Is that right? Is that pa- Pastor Brad? Are we, are we together? <laughs> Amen. We say that a lot. You know, when we preach. Are we together? Amen. Okay, so think about that as I tell the story. There's a woman. There's a great sign in heaven. Okay? There's a woman. She's clothed with the sun. She's, she's got the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. And she's pregnant. She cries out as she's about to give birth. And there's another sign in heaven. There's an enormous red dragon. He has seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. And the dragon sweeps a third of the stars from the sky and he flings them to the earth and then he stands in front of the woman in order to devour her child the moment that it's born. But the woman gives birth to the child, a son, and the child is snatched up to God into his throne. And then the woman flees into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she's going to be taken care of for 1,260 days. And then there's war in heaven, Michael and his angels. They fight against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels, they fight back. But the dragon was not strong enough, and they lose their place in heaven, and they're thrown down to the earth. And so the, the ancient serpent, this, the devil, this ancient serpent, who leads the whole world astray, he's hurled down, he's thrown down. And then there's a loud voice in heaven that says, Now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ because the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down to the earth and therefore rejoice. Well, and then then they overcame Him. They overcame the Ancient One, this, this serpent. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and because they didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. But when the dragon saw that he had been thrown to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly to the place prepared for her by God for time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. And then the serpent spews a river out of his mouth in order to sweep the woman away with a torrent. But the earth opens its mouth and swallows the river... And this so enrages the dragon 
that he pursues after the rest. In rage, he pursues making war against the rest of the woman's offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, isn't that an awesome story? It's just a truly amazing... You know what? It's our story if you're a believer in Christ. That's why it's an important story to know. The story, yet the story is a little bit troubling because the story is not so much about peace on earth as it is about war in heaven. The dragon, he flings a third of the stars from the sky to the earth and then he stands in front of the woman in order to devour her child. And then John tells us in verse 7, there's war in heaven, Michael and his angels warring against the dragon and his angels. And when the dragon is hurled down after, the, after the, uh, the sun is snatched up to God, the dragon, in fury, pursues after the woman, and the woman is given the, great, the wings of a, of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her by God. And then the dragon spews the river out of his mouth to sweep the woman away. And when the, when the earth opens its mouth to help the woman and swallow the river, the dragon, in verse 17, was so enraged, it says at the woman that he went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So you see, it's all about war. You see, it's an awesome story. It's the grand biblical drama, the epic biblical drama, but it's a war story. And it's a war story that actually involves all of us, whether you like it or not, or whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, it involves all of us. Look at verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. The devil deceived Adam and Eve into rebelling against God, and they were banished from the garden. And the devil continues even today to blind the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot understand the gospel. And he has taken the unbeliever captive, Paul tells us, to do his will. We're all involved, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, we're involved in a great spiritual war. You're either part of the world led astray or you're one of the brothers, male and female believers in Jesus Christ. Now, it's a great story, but it's a war story that involves all of us, but it's the kingdom story. It's the kingdom story, and the kingdom story is the story of Jesus which fulfills the Israel story. Let's think about it. It's the kingdom story. Look at verse 12. A loud voice in heaven said, Now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God. Now has come the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. It's the kingdom story. And the kingdom story is the Israel story finding its fulfillment in the Jesus story. You know the the story of the light-bearing woman? You know the story of Israel? God called Abraham and promised Abraham a homeland and multiple descendants in order to bless all the nations of the earth. And they go down into Egypt where they become enslaved. They multiply there, but they're enslaved. And God raises up Moses to deliver them out of Egyptian slavery. And God carries them on eagle's wings and brings them to himself and binds himself to binds them to himself in a covenant. And they become his treasured possession. They become a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. And then we see under the time of the judges that for them to become a truly a kingdom of priests, that is a light to the nations, the chaotic period of the judges indicated for them to be a holy nation that they would need a king. 
And God found a king after his own heart in David. And David made plans for, and his son Solomon built the Jerusalem temple as a more permanent sanctuary for God to dwell in the midst of his people. But because of the idolatry that was brought in by Solomon because of his many foreign alliances and his many foreign wives, the idolatry that was brought in split the nation, led to a civil war, and the northern kingdom was scattered and taken over by the Assyrians. And eventually, the southern kingdom was taken into exile in Babylon. And though they fared some better, they spent 70 years in uh, Babylonian captivity and it wasn't until the Persians overcame the Babylonians that the Jews were allowed to leave and return to their land Uh, but even the rebuilt temple never lived up to the glories of the previous temple and it fell desperately short of the promises of the kingdom that were made by Jeremiah and uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel And so Israel remained dominated by pagan world empires, the Persian and then the Greeks and then the Romans at the time of the Lord Jesus. The people were living under under tyranny under the Roman Empire. And that's the Israel story. And it comes to fulfillment when a woman cries out in pain. And doesn't that sound like the Exodus? Here they are crying out and God hears them. And they're crying out in the first century And though the dragon seeks to devour the child and Herod marshaled his troops just like Pharaoh tried to destroy all the male child at the time of Moses, the child is born and this child is destined to rule all the nations and he is snatched up to God and to God's throne. And this is the Jesus story. In fulfillment of Psalm 2, he was snatched up to God. That's the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God. This is the Jesus story. And so much is packed in that one statement. Her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. It's the story of Jesus fulfilling the story of Israel, which is the kingdom story. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit, and he went out into the wilderness where he took on Satan, and he uh, overcame Satan, and when he came back from the wilderness, he announced that the kingdom of God was present in, or near in his presence. And he was casting out demons by the Spirit of God, evidencing that the kingdom of God had come. And then he forms a new twelve around himself and begins to include those that were otherwise unclean and unacceptable to the temple worship. He includes them in the people of God and says that those that are around him are his brothers and sisters and mother. And when his disciples recognize his identity as as the true Messiah of Israel... He proceeds to go to Jerusalem where he is crucified on a cross as the king of the Jews. And he looked like a messianic pretender. He looked like a failure because he had been defeated by the Romans. And yet three days later, according to Paul in Romans 1-4, through the spirit of holiness, Jesus was declared with power to be the son of God that is the divine Messiah by his resurrection from the dead. And he appeared to his disciples over a 40-day period and taught them about the kingdom of God before he was snatched up to God and to his throne. And now he reigns at the right hand of God, at God's throne, as God's Messiah, as the resurrected Messiah and the Lord of all the earth. Amen? You see, it's the kingdom story. That's why it's a good news story, even though it's a war story that involves all of us. It's a good news story because it's the kingdom story. And, you know, war stories are not usually good stories, right? Hey, we're at world war. 
Good news for you, right? But it's a good news story because the king, the victor, the champion, has entered the battle and won the decisive victory. And that's why it's good news. Do you remember at the beginning of the monarchy under King Saul when the, God had promised the Israelites the land, but the Philistines were still in the land dominating the Old Testament people? And there was Saul and his army on one hill, and there was the Philistines on another hill. And every day, Goliath of Gath, the giant, would come out with his bronze helmet and his 126 pounds of scale armor and his spear with his 15-pound tip. And he would come out and he would defy the armies of Israel. And he would say, choose someone from amongst the armies of Saul to fight me to the death. And the losers will serve the victors. And Saul and his army were immobilized in fear. And this went on for 40 days until the shepherd boy, David, enters the battlefield carrying provisions for his brothers who were in Saul's army. And when David hears the Philistine mocking, David says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And when Saul heard about it, he called for David. And David volunteered to fight the giant. But Saul said, You're only a boy. And, and Goliath has been a warrior since youth. And David said, No, but when I, as a shepherd, God delivered both the, the lion and the bear into my hands, and I killed them. And he'll do the same with this uncircumcised Philistine. So Saul sends him out into the battlefield. And he's got his shepherd's staff. And he's got his pouch and his five smooth stones and his sling. And he approaches the giant. And the giant he, he says, who, who am I? A dog that you come at me with sticks? And he cursed David by his gods. And David said, I come against you in the name of the Lord of the armies of Israel. And he's going to give you into my hands. And I'll strike you down and I'll cut off your head. He took his sling and he whirled it. And he fired the stone. It hit the giant in the forehead and embedded in his forehead. And he fell on his face. And David stepped on his back. He reached down and grabbed the giant's sword and cut off the giant's sword with his own sword. Cut off the giant's head with his own sword. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled in fear. And Israel pursued them and plundered the Philistines. And they plundered their camp. What a great story. You know why I like that story? Because it's the gospel. All was lost until God's anointed coming king, David, defeated the dragon-like Goliath. And he did it on behalf of the people of God as God's anointed king. You see, it's the gospel. And this is our gospel. God's anointed coming Davidic king, Messiah Jesus, has entered into the battle and he has won the decisive victory on behalf of God's people. And that's why it's good news, my friends. <laughs> Jesus has won the victory on our behalf in his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. John, Jesus tells us in John 12, 31, on his way to the cross, Jesus said this, now is time for judgment. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And Paul tells us in Colossians 2.15 that Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And our passage says, She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to His throne. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, 
and you who dwell in them. Amen? So how do we? You say, well, how does all this apply to me? This is our story. <laughs> this is our story. This is, this is our history. You see, it's not just Africans that are defined <laughs> or have their identity and their history defined by stories. This is our story. It should define us. It's our history. This is who we are. So how does it apply to us? And where are we in the story? Well, look at verse 6. The woman fled into the desert, a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. This is the only, this is the only puzzle-like piece that we're going to deal with, but uh, very briefly, hopefully. Now, in the next, uh, well, in verse 14, it talks about time, times, and half a time. So what are we talking about here? 1,260 days is 42 months of 30-day months, and is a 30, so it's three, three and a half years. And they're really, you know, I'm going to simplify. There's only three views. There's a variety, actually. You can combine those, but and they usually are. But there's really only three views, so let's think about it. The three-and-a-half-year period, the 1,260 days, the time, times, and half a time, where the woman would be taken care of in the desert. What, what, how does it apply? What does it do? Well, it's, it's a tribulation period. One view is it's a tribulation period, not only in John's future, but still in our future, in the three and a half years surrounding the return of Christ. And if that's the strength of that view, is that it tends to emphasize a kind of the eminent return of Christ. And so there's a kind of an urgency about the, the eminent or the anytime return of Christ. That's kind of the strength of that view. Now, another view sees this three and a half years as a tribulation, not only in John's future, but in our past, fulfilled usually in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the events surrounding that. Now, the, the advantage or the, uh, what the, the strength of this view is it tends to be optimistic about the extension and expansion of the kingdom because Christ's kingdom overcame its first century antagonists, that is, false pharisaical Judaism and the Roman Empire, which eventually became Christianized, at least outwardly. So we should be optimistic about the extension of the kingdom. Now, the other view is, and this is a common in reform circles, is a non-literal view, a three-and-a-half-year period, Time, times, and half a time referring to the rest of the time, the rest of the church age or the age between the two advents. Now, if you think about it, unless we're in the last three and a half years of human history, the vast majority of Christians, the application for this is the ongoing spiritual warfare that is depicted for us in vivid imagery in this particular passage. The, you see, the woman, verse 14, was given the two wings of a great eagle to fly to the place prepared for her by, in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. You know where that imagery comes from, the, the wings? We've mentioned it already. The wings of an eagle refers to the Exodus and God carrying Israel out of Egypt on eagle's wings and bringing them to himself and then telling them need, they need to obey his covenant and they would be his treasured possession. They'd be a holy nation. God carried them on eagle's wings. And you see, in the new covenant, through the better mediator Christ, through the better sacrifice of himself, in this new covenant, God carries the believer in Christ on eagle's wings to himself and binds himself or binds us to himself through the blood of Christ, through the better covenant, through the better sacrifice. 
And we, believers in Christ, become the treasured possession of God. We are a kingdom of priests. We are a holy nation. And we, who have fled to Jesus, are God's treasured possession. Amen? We are bound to God in a better covenant. Now, the woman is really the covenant community of believers in Christ. Jew and Gentile believers in Christ, the church. And the wilderness is a metaphor for the Christian life. But ours is not a wandering in the desert for disobedience because we flee by faith to Jesus, the place prepared for us by God where we will be taken care of out of the serpent's reach. Amen? And I'll just conclude by telling you a story. Now, I used to do a lot of cycling years ago, 25 pounds ago or 25 years ago. I used to do a lot of cycling in Redmond when it was all farms. And, uh, you know, where Microsoft is, <laughs> used to be all farmland. So we used to bike out there. And I was part of a pretty avid group of bikers. And so we, we used to go on these long rides and we used to like to invite newcomers on this one particular ride. It was about 80 miles long. And about half to, halfway through that ride was a long, steep hill. And we used to get to that hill, and we would race up that hill as fast as we could. And our newcomers would say, what are you doing? We're only halfway through the ride. And we'd get up at the top of that hill, and we'd be so winded. And all of a sudden, at the top, you start hearing barking. And the barking is getting a little louder and a little louder. And you turn and you see this big black dog with big white teeth running at you with saliva coming out and ready to bite you. And the dog would come up to the street and lunge at you. And all of a sudden, it was chained and it couldn't reach the street. And we used to bike by calmly. But our friend was petrified, thinking that he would have to outrace this mad dog. You see, my friend, the dog's bark was worse than his bite. (laughs) And the Bible tells us in vivid imagery, the devil has been thrown down. He does not have any accusation to make against the genuine believer in Christ because Christ has lived and died for us. And he has rose again from the dead and we are righteous in him. And we are safe in him because he has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And the devil is bound, he's chained, and he has no accusation to bring against the true believer in Christ. So when the devil comes to you and he says, you are not the woman's offspring, and you don't obey God's commandments, and you don't hold faithfully to the testimony of Jesus, then you tell the devil what Martin Luther used to tell, tell the devil. Luther used to say, thank you, devil, for reminding me that I have no righteousness of my own. And then you transfer your trust from yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you embrace him by faith. And then you tell the devil, and you remind him, the accuser of the brothers, that he's a loser, and he couldn't prevent the child from being born, and he couldn't prevent the child from being snatched up to God. And you overcome him by the blood of, his, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of your testimony. Now, my friends, that's our story. So learn the story. You know why? Because the gospel is the story, and that's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 
your story. And we thank you for your grace that makes your story our story. And we thank you, King Jesus, for entering the battle and winning the decisive victory on our behalf. And we rejoice with all heaven in the name above every name, Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen.